Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The U.S. bond market is red hot as 10-year yields are at their highest since 2007, as Senate and House leaders work to avoid a government shutdown. Another real estate bust in China prompts lending rate cuts, and the ruble plunges as Russia struggles to keep its war economy going under Western sanctions. Washington has finally cleared Denmark and the Netherlands to train Ukrainians uh, on uh, F-16 fighters, uh, 42 of which will be donated to the two countries, to Kiev, to help its war effort. The United States Air Force has awarded Jet Zero as the prime contractor with Northrop Grumman as its chief subcontractor, a $235 million contract to develop a new blended wing body aircraft demonstrator that could revolutionize not just air transport, but aerial tanking. And BAE Systems announced plans to acquire Ball Aerospace, an innovative maker of military and civil space systems, as well as critical electronics, for more than $5 billion. And joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in sunny, uh, back here in sunny Washington, D.C. Everybody, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so very much for joining us. It wouldn't be a weekend without it, Barbara. Yeah, absolutely, Vargo. Thank you. Yeah, great to be on and great to be back in Washington. It is great to have you back. And Washington, D.C. is absolutely lovely. So it's not the oppressive, crushing uh, August uh, that it uh, normally is. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, Bonds uh, and the economy are hot. Uh, The Fed is looking at easing away from another rate increase, which is uh, good and has uh, is is expected and hoped, uh, uh, but unfortunately, it looks like uh, China is uh, you know the Chinese market is going uh, from economic trouble to worse economic trouble, and so is Russia. But they're in their own ecosystem, so it's not really as as critical. How did the group uh, perform uh, against all these uh, global economic factors last week? Yeah, I think the thing you got to watch is the ten year yield, and the ten year yield uh, is up above four and a quarter uh, percent this week. That's the highest it's been since June 2008, and the yield curve remains you know, pretty healthily inverted. Uh, so that, that's kind of a funky backdrop, right? Because an inverted yield curve generally isn't thought of as sort of the optimal um, situation. The S&P for the week was down a little over 2%. Uh, the defense stocks, the large cap defense stocks in particular, uh, outperformed broadly. Uh, so you say, look at Northrop or Lockheed as examples. They were down a fraction of a percent, you know, outperforming the broader market. Uh, Boeing was down almost 4%. Uh, the, the real one that really outperformed this week was uh, Triumph Group. It was up 8.5%. My sense there is you've got some you know, kind of deep value folks, uh, maybe bottom fishing uh, there. Spirit Aerosystems was down almost uh, a little over 7%. And you know, a lot of the rest of the moves were kind of in that range. So I would say broadly, you know, defense outperformed, uh, commercial underperformed, and then there's some you know, company-specific stuff. When you look at the VIX index, that measurement of fear we tend to keep an eye on, it's been climbing. So we're back up into the high teens, it bottomed out in the low teens. WTI crude is just you know, bumping along around 81. Brent around 85. It's been there for a while. The SPAC index is down about 10%. And, and I think, you know, a couple of things are, you know, like you mentioned, uh, people are thinking about it. The slowdown in China, I think, is on everybody's minds. Um, so so we'll see. We'll see what happens. But it's, you know, you got the August malaise going on. You know, a lot of people are out of office and some, you know, some funky economic crosswinds globally. And I think that's all weighing on the market. And uh, the deal to avert a government's uh, shutdown, that, is that moving any uh, needle at all, at all? Or was that kind of an expectation investors had anyway, which is, yeah, these guys will figure it out? Yeah, I think, I think broadly, I don't know if it was, quote unquote, an expectation, but it didn't really move much. And I think the broad view is, yeah, sooner or later they figure it out because they always do, right? right. Um, yeah, one way or the other. So I think that's where the market is on that. That, that works as long as they keep figuring it out. The minute they don't figure it out, it becomes a problem. Um, Sash, uh, week on European markets, especially given the exposure, the higher exposure that countries there uh, have, uh, not just to China, but to a degree as well, Russia? Yeah, I mean, it, look, it was a pretty lousy weekend uh, in the sector. Um, Ron's caveat about the fact that a huge proportion of investors are away on um, summer vacation. And so there's just very little volume in the market. You really have to see all share price movements and you know last week but also this weekend um with with that particular 
filter on. Um, but yeah, I, you know, stocks in the European aerospace and defence sector were off a very, very solid three percent, and the underperformers were, you know, off for um, a- around five percent. What was interesting, right. I thought, was that it's quite hard to draw a pattern from the underperformance outperformance. So, you know, if you look at the two stocks that have the biggest single exposure to China, uh, Rolls Royce, because Rolls Royce uh, Trent seven hundred engines power the vast majority of China's medium-haul A330 airliners. Um, Rolls was off about 4.5%. Airbus, which is, you know, dominates uh, deliveries of aircraft, new aircraft into China, was off about 3%. So, you know, pretty much in line with the rest of the sector. Um, some of the bigger underperformers were actually in the defence sector. BA Systems, uh, which announced the acquisition of Ball Aerospace. We're going to talk about that uh, in, in a few minutes. I mean, that was, that was off 5.5%. Um, but uh, Hensoldt, the German defense electronics company, was down, you know, just under 5% as well. So there wasn't any great pattern in it. I just don't think the market was terribly, you know, investors were terribly interested in adding to equities exposure and probably uh, taking a bit of money off the table. And and how does uh, the fact that the Russians may actually have destroyed a third of Ukraine's grain, uh, how does that Im- impact uh, the the sort of market dynamics uh, that we're seeing because the ruble now is down to like a penny, uh, a, 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 you know, which is lower than it's been in a very long long time. Yeah, um, I mean, for a start, none of the stocks that in our coverage have exposed to Russia. Period. They um, they had to stop if they were a defense company or had defense exposure. They had to stop on the dot of the Russian invasion last year, and the civil aerospace stocks. You know, within a couple of weeks, they all took big charges last year against their outstanding exposures, whether it was leasing engines in the case of uh, Rolls, uh, uh, but particularly Safran and MTU or uh, air- airliner deliveries and um, uh, maintenance contracts in the case of you know Airbus and so forth. They all had exposures. They all wrote them down. There's no direct exposure in this sector to uh, to Russia anymore, but I mean the broader issue, which is the um, uh, the short, the, you know, the grain shortage, that clearly, ha- first of all, that that drives global inflation. Secondly, it drives um, instability in the uh, in the Middle East and um, in the, the northern and central Africa, because that's where the majority of Ukrainian grain goes. Uh, that's clearly a, a significant long term issue, um, but. We haven't yet got investors sort of doing the read across to that or, or asking whether there is a measurable read across the stocks in our sector. Interesting. Um, uh, Richard, uh, I want to bring you in uh, to uh, the discussion to give us sort of a sense on uh, the Chinese economic uh, collapse. Uh, right. Uh, for a while, the economy was looking red hot. You know, one of, you know, China catches a cold. Uh, you know, everybody else in the world gets sick. What are we seeing and how do China's economic problems uh, impact uh, particularly particularly on the commercial aerospace side since they've been such a powerful engine for growth uh, for, for all the companies in the sector, many of the companies in the sector? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, China is kind of its own polycrisis. You know, Adam Tu is the economist sort of uh, posited that this thesis for the theme for this year is global polycrisis. China is its own polycrisis, a series of events. One, of course, is the economics, the broader economics, GDP, not good, prices, really not good, deflation, obviously, staring them in the face. But on top of that, you have a greater level of insularity for economic activity in general. So foreign direct investment, that has collapsed, absolutely. And that, of course, is, is driven as much by politics as it is by economics. Uh, and you know, you're seeing it in trade numbers. What's most intriguing is you're also seeing it in the air transport numbers. The domestic market has more than recovered to 2019 levels. So even if there is uh, a bit of an economic crisis in China, people are still flying domestically, but internationally, it hasn't moved that much upward. And you know, obviously there are no longer any restrictions. Part of it is, you know, uh, economic. Part of it, of course, is also political. This is no longer a great time to be a, a true citizen of the world as a, as a member of the PRC. You're expected to be, you know, make the PRC great again. And that's all, you know, hence the FDI collapse. And it's that's not good. Um, meanwhile, of course, you know, jetliner deliveries are still stuck in the, you know, where they 
where they'd been the past few years. The peak was 2018. Things collapsed with the max back in 2019. Uh, the max is back in service. Numbers haven't recovered in terms of deliveries. You know, I mean, basically at their peak, they were, um, you know, I mean, 23% of the world market for jetliners. Now they're at best half that. And I just don't think given everything we're seeing, that you should have greater expectations for getting much higher than the mid-teens. So everybody's favorite growth market looks set to stay exactly where it is and nothing terribly spectacular. Um, the uh, Indigo 787, is that an array of brightness in a sea of unbrightness? <laughs> it's a fascinating, uh, I guess, continuation of a trend we've seen all year which is that international traffic isn't bad, you know, but everyone is going after it with A321neos and to a lesser extent 737 maxes, except for the long haul stuff. And there's just an awful lot of people who want that long haul traffic. You know, so much of that India, Europe, India, North America, whatever traffic had gone to the Gulf state super connectors, they're planning for, you know, exactly the same future. You're planning orders probably at Dubai and whatever else and other air shows. But, you know, <laughs> okay, uh, now Saudi wants that traffic. Turkey wants that traffic. Morocco mm -hmm. wants that traffic. And, oh, by the way, so much of their growth was fueled by India, and India wants its traffic back. Air India, of course, planning their big order. But now Indigo saying, oh, yeah, international, we'd like to get some of that for ourselves some getting that Indian traffic back. So again, you've just got fantastic order activity, but a limited pool of traffic. So I'm concerned about double counting. I'm concerned about a bit of a, a capacity, well, an overcapacity situation, because a lot of this is going to be fueled by government assistance. See also Turkey, see also Saudi Arabia, especially. And when you have overcapacity, well, you price to fill, and that could see deterioration of yields on international long haul and big parts of the world. Ron and, and Sash, your guys uh, take. And also, by the way, Ron, if you want to start us off and add uh, Ember results to this mix uh, as well, right? Because, I mean, to an extent, they're an interesting bellwether uh, now that they've reported. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't have a heck of a lot to add to what Richard said. I mean, you know, that the, the China slowdown is, you know, it is it is what it is. But it, like Richard said, I mean, it was everybody's favorite growth market. Now, I think folks are trying to pivot to India, but uh, we'll we'll see how that all plays out. I mean, so everybody's fighting for that traffic. On the Embraer numbers, they reported a, a solid quarter, right? I mean, their book to bill and their uh, their business jet business was over two. Um, their book to bill in their commercial business was over one. Um, their deliveries are trending back to kind of what are more normal levels in uh, in their commercial business. Uh, they're expecting to grow their E1 and E2 deliveries year over year into next year by 20% and maybe another 20% the year after that. So, um, you know, as pilot pay scales in North America have sort of, you know, have, I would say, not completely sorted themselves out, but as, as things have sorted themselves um, the regional airlines seem to be in better shape and their demand for um, aircraft in North America is picking up uh, and they seem to be doing pretty well internationally. So kind of all in all, it was it was a solid quarter. The stock was volatile when they reported because there was um, some, I would say, miscommunication on the call around what their book to bill would be at the end of the year. But um, they seem to be getting back to maybe a, a more pre-COVID, uh, at least tracking towards normal. Um yeah, I'll leave it there. Um, Sash, anything you want to add on the long haul and, and China uh, traffic part of it? Well, actually, I just wanted to pick up on Richard's comparison of China and India and the degree to which um, a lot of expectations among investors as well as among corporates is that um, even if China slows, then growth in the Indian civil aerospace, civil aviation market will pick up the, the slack. And it's absolutely true. You know, I mean, India is an enormous market, very under-traveled, uh, albeit it is clearly significantly poorer than China was when China started its uh, major expansion um, of uh, air travel about 15 years ago. Um, but I do think the thing that will hold India back is that the infrastructure is starts off being way less good than Chinese infrastructure. And this is a fu function of the fact that China... Um, benefited from being a very, very centrally run um, 
not terribly capitalistic state, even at the best of times. Um, India is, the vast majority of Indian airlines, in fact, all Indian airlines are uh, privately owned. And there's very, very little government uh, focus on infrastructure, whether it's building airports or air traffic control or training pilots or um, uh, purchasing aircraft, which China has done. And I think India will find, you know, will go through very rapid periods of indigestion and then uh, you know, starvation as, as the, the infrastructure s- struggles to uh, keep up with the, um, uh, the the potential demand there. Whereas I think, you know, the Chinese better what really managed um, the growth of the economy and in parallel the growth of their aviation industry pretty well. Um, barring any, uh, Richard, did you uh, have anything to add before we move on about uh, Embraer or anything else? Um, you know, just a, a quick comment on Embraer. It was very interesting to hear their talk about, you know, um, delays in getting military contracts signed, you know, KC-390, Super Tucano. And that was kind of interesting because they've, you know, first of all, they're the biggest single trainer producer in the prop market. We're tied. Um, KC-390, I think all of us are kind of in awe of that as great value for money and just a terrific technical achievement. But we always thought the market for both of those products was not really exploding the way it markets are for every other single defense product under the sun. So it's kind of interesting. I guess you've got this company that executes brilliantly, um, but is sort of in the wrong market space in a couple of ways because uh, everyone's priorities seem to have shifted. So whether that changes, whether we do begin to see the contract signatures that they've been expecting, or whether they need to think about a somewhat different strategy towards their defense industry, this this is, I think, a big question moving forward. Uh, And a quick word from our sponsors before we go on. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Um, Sash, let me uh, jump to you uh, and ask you about BAE Systems. Uh, They proposed uh, buying Ball Aerospace for $5.6 billion. Uh, It's a very highly capable uh, supplier of military uh, and civil space uh, and uh, key electronics, but it's at a premium. Uh, how important is the deal and how are folks uh, looking at it over uh, where you are? Because it's both an American story, but it's also sort of a broader BAE uh, growth uh, story. Although you had a terrific note on that saying it, it's actually a bolt-on, right? Even though it's $5.6 billion given BAE's uh, sheer size. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that that's absolutely right. You know, we we think it's a good deal, and I mean, I think we probably disagree with um, uh, with with Ron on this. You know, at the margin, um, for a start, in general, we would rather that uh, our companies grew rather than just um, uh, distributed. You know, paid back too much in terms of share buybacks to uh, to investors. Um, it's very hard, even for companies like BA Systems, which is a genuinely transatlantic business, to uh, buy. Uh, some of the most sensitive assets that come up in, in, in the US. I think they are acutely aware that when businesses of quality of ball aerospace come up, um, they will probably have to pay a premium for them, but they don't come up very often, you know, once a decade, once every couple of decades in this case. Um, so, you know, BA were prepared to pay a premium where perhaps some other US companies were not. BA has been making a bit of a foray into space as a market in the last five years or so. It's been a very, you know, it's been underreported, but I think they realized that they were underexposed to space relative to, for example, um, you know, defense electronics, uh, uh, and in particular, you know, focused around the the former Lockheed Martin Sanders business, um, but also then, you know, armored vehicles and and the core UK businesses in uh, fixed wing aircraft and, uh, and, and warships and submarines and so forth. So, you know, space mass matters to BAE because it's an area they weren't exposed in. We thought it was worth, you know, it was worth them paying a bit of a um, a premium for. But, you know, put it into perspective, it's a pretty small proportion of um, uh, BAE's business. It'll grow BAE's total revenues by of the order of, you know, 5, 5% plus, uh, 5%, 6%. Um, and you know they're paying about thirteen percent of the uh, equity capitalization. That's not going to it won't move the needle as such. But I do think giving BA better exposure, more exposure to some very classified 
uh, US government revenues that they wouldn't have got exposure to organically any other way. Um, you know, we, we think the, uh, that that's worth it. Uh, I think I, I think that's actually a pretty good thesis, given that uh, kind of the unique things the the company has always done, and and I think uh, right. I mean, circumstance was was right that you know the parent ball uh, wanted to create some revenue to help them on the packaging side of the business because it's the same. You know, ball aerospace came from ball jars, uh, even though uh, uh, you know ball has been. Uh, you know, sort of a separate company and running as a separate company for uh, for a while now. Ron, anything uh, you want to br- briefly add to this, especially about sort of the general M and A environment we find ourselves in? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a it's a it's a tricky time for M and A uh, with U.S. companies, right? Um, if you look at you know the 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 time uh, and maybe difficulty it took for L three hires to close the Aerojet rocket line deal. And you know Lockheed not being able to do that, and other companies you know outside our industry having trouble closing larger deals. Um, you know it's it's probably an interesting time for a non-U.S. company uh, to try to pick up a, uh, a U.S. asset. So um, I think that's probably part of what's going on too. Um, I'm going to uh, bet uh, 25 cents that Richard, uh, because this involves the word space, is completely, uh, completely not interested in this, uh, unless it was helping bandwidth wise from uh, row. Uh, I'm sorry, I was going to say row 30, but you wouldn't really be seen that far back in the airplane, uh, whether or not you have the right kind of satellite connectivity in the front of the airplane is what I was going to say. Uh, moving right along. <laughs> Um, uh, staying uh, terrestrial here, staying terrestrial, and also staying terrestrial. Indonesia in row forty-one. So there you have it. <laughs> well, uh, that's right. Where connectivity actually matters uh, quite a lot. Um, let me get you to start us off on the extraordinary announcement by uh, the Air Force, picking as the prime contractor for its new blended wing body demonstrator, um, a small company of ex Douglas aircraft folks who've been working on this for a long period of time, uh, the Jet Zero folks, uh, they win a $235 million contract with Northrop Grumman as the industrial muscle. Um, this is a real watershed, isn't it? Like walk walk us through, and, and Ron, I wanna get your sense on this because you also know uh, these folks personally um, and, and what that marks, right? Where you could have a small innovative company um, that that is the brains of the operation, and then actually one of the heritage primes you would think would be doing the work is is actually the industrial muscle behind it. You know, I think this is the best thing I've seen in decades. Uh, it's it's pretty darn phenomenal. Um, the idea of a public private partnership actually encouraging innovation, uh, especially for such very promising markets. It's obvious that we need, for the long run, some kind of new solution for long-range air-to-air refueling, something that might involve lower observability. This is a very promising solution for that. Um, $235 million isn't a lot to construct a prototype, but it's enough to galvanize industry to do its part, to chip in a bit of IRAD. It wasn't just Northrop Grumman. Also, Raytheon has a heavy presence, Pratt & Whitney engines and whatever else from right. Collins. Uh, so I, I think you've got something really interesting going on here. And on the commercial side, it's the hottest growth market by far. It's currently occupied 85% by the A321, which is a mediocre jet that's doing great business because it's all you can get for that market. In the long run, we need a better solution for that growth market, mid-market. And, um, you know, this one's really, really an interesting possibility. We don't, it'll take till 2038 at the very earliest. It'll take convincing Northrop Grumman to cease being a pure play defense prime and or you know have its role played by somebody else. Um, but this is a really interesting, really promising design for that job. There are infrastructure challenges. A lot of money is going to be required for a new company to break in. But, you know, Boeing has politely said that they will absolutely not be doing anything new for a decade. So uh, thanks for that information. Uh, <laughs> maybe someone else would like to take advantage of this extremely uh, promising growth market. And maybe it's this consortium. Um, and again, in the meantime, it's kudos to the government for thinking long range and providing some kind of pump priming cash. You know, we spend a lot of time criticizing AFWorks and others for throwing cash down the EV toll hole or, you know, throwing money at boom for some reason because they like playful freehand drawings. It was fantastic to see uh, a chunk of cash going to something that is extremely innovative and promising. My 
co-managing director Kevin Michaels and I paid them a visit, and it was fascinating because it's in a it's in a storefront, a strip mall in Long Beach by the airport. You know, come for the jet design, stay to have your nails done by the the nice Vietnamese family next door. You know, it's 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 sort of this. I can't believe it's in a storefront, but it's filled with a couple of dozen super smart people who are really passionate about innovating. So how could you not be excited by that? Ron, walk us through why blended wing body. Right, I mean we've been talking about this for a long time. Boeing has done some scale model work uh, on that. Uh, and so is NASA and so is DARPA and so is everybody uh, at this point. What are the advantages of blended wing body? And talk to us about the contour, the dimensions uh, of this airplane, right? Because Richard is giving us a sense it's it's sort of an A321 size airplane, but it's actually scalable. And some of the jets we were seeing were actually significantly bigger uh, the, than that uh, footprint. You're the aerodynamicist. Walk us through why this is attractive and, and the attributes of this airplane and how it could actually be totally game-changing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you got to think about it this way, kind of in, in most simple of terms, the entire airplane's flying. When you look at a, an architecture that's a wing and a tube and a tail, um, the wing's flying, and there's other parts of the airplane that are flying, but you got a lot of the airplane that's flying not very efficiently, like namely the fuselage. In the case of a blended wing body or just a flying wing, the whole, the whole thing's flying, right? So you get a, a huge advantage in terms of what you can do in terms of range and the payload. So just in simple terms, kind of what they're putting forth compared to a current generation tanker, you can fly the same payload twice as far or twice as much payload, the same, the same distance. So if you're dealing with distances in the Pacific, um, it's it's awesomely more efficient. And it shouldn't be surprising. It's just, you know, it's just the, the shape of the vehicle. Now, what makes it more complicated when you scale it up and you scale it down? It's not as simple as just adding some tube, right? That's the and what right. makes the wing and tube so attractive is it's almost like Legos, right? The, the wing and the tube don't really talk all that much to each other and the tail doesn't talk that much to the tube and doesn't talk that much to the wing. So you have a lot of flexibility to kind of go Lego. You can't really do that with one of these. So when you scale it up and down, it's just a more complicated process. The flight physics in terms of the flow over the wing is more complicated. If you go back in history, um, that would have been much more difficult to try to model, uh, uh, you know, using computational fluid dynamics because, you know, just kind of bluntly, we just didn't have the computational power like we do today. Um, but since since we do have that today and we have the ability to use fly-by-wire control systems, and it's commonplace, obviously, now in most everything but a 737, um, the, the, it's, it's just... I think the time is the time has come. I mean, I'm very, very excited about it because you know aerodynamically, it's 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 an awesome shape to carry things. Um, you know, there's issues around customer acceptance, and there's issues around if you have it in passenger service and you're sitting, you know, out towards you know, farther out in the span, you know, you're going to feel more movement of the airplane and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's not a slam dunk, but it's a darn good you know profile for an aircraft, and particularly in a military application. You know, I would go as far as to say it's almost a no-brainer. And in a commercial application, it'll take some work. But I think even in that case, if you're really going to get serious about doing something more efficient, you can do it with this. And, oh, by the way, you want to power it with hydrogen? Go ahead. you got room to do it. You want to use SAF? Go ahead. You've got plenty of room to do that. If someone comes up with the magic batteries, you can do it with that, too. And it, it'll, it'll perform even better. So, you know, from a, uh, a propulsion point of view, you have so much freedom a ton more freedom than you would with a traditional wing and tube. So it's, it's, I love it. So I, I can just put it that way. How much more lifting capacity, right? I mean, because I, I see the point you're making, right? I mean, it's the wing, it's the tail, it's the underbody a little bit, uh, but generally the fuselage is drag. In this case, it's all lift. So for a like sized, let's say a 737 sized airplane, how much tonnage increase do you get if you're going to blend it, you know, like just, just so that the audience has some sense of, well, you can, yeah, lift, I, mean, I, lift, I think, you know, I think, I think tons, a rough, you can lift 200. Yeah. I mean, a rough rule of thumb is two X, right? I mean, it, it gets a little more complicated by that because it depends on how you shape it exactly and all that, but ballpark, it's like two X, right? So if you're going to carry whatever a hundred tons, you can go twice as far or you can carry 200 tons, the same distance. I mean, it, it really is magnificently more efficient and it makes sense because it's, it's a wing. And, you know, the way that the, the consortium is kind of pulled together, having Northrop on your team, who's sort of the heritage of, you know, Jack Northrop and the flying wing and, and the B2 and the B21 and whatever else they've done in the classified world. Um, if you're going to be making a, you know, a, a machine that is, you know, essentially a flying wing, that's what a blended wing body is. 
who else would you want in your team besides Northrop? I mean, that's a slam dunk. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, you were talking about computational fluid dynamics and, and fly-by-wire, right? N Northrop did the flying wing uh, with uh, radial engines, then it did it with jets, and they were both problematic. And it was able to realize that flying wing design because of uh, modern uh, flight controls, um, which uh, proved game-changing. And, of course, you have a, a lower uh, radar uh, cross-section uh, on this. Um does doesn't does this uh, uh, Sash? Do you want to weigh in on on this at all? Uh, coming at it from a, a, a European perspective, uh, given that you know Airbus has talked about this, and uh, you, you know obviously you know you you don't have window seats, right? It becomes you get much more center body on this, and so you have to figure out different ways of getting light uh, into uh, the cabin, uh, uh, which would be a little bit of a challenge. But at the end of the day, honestly, if you have a good in-flight entertainment system, I don't know how many people are looking. I mean, I, I don't know many people who are looking out the window generally, especially for long transatlantic flights with lots of boring water. Um, sort of your, your sense uh, on this, and I do have a follow-up on what this means uh, n necessarily for uh, 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 Boeing uh, at the end of the day, not uh, to be to be part of this. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, look. If you uh, if you look at the the the, the designs, the mockups, whatever, on the Jet Zero website, it's got a ton of uh, windows in the what we've got the cabin ceiling. That's how they're trying to compensate for um, the the lack of uh, daylight. Um, uh, okay, you don't get a great view that way, but I mean, that's that's clearly something they're thinking about right now. So, I mean, what you know, what are the implications of this? Um, this starts the next big design. Well, if it was defense, it would be an arms race, wouldn't it? Um, Airbus is okay. Airbus has got huge amounts of, you know, what in M&A terms would be called dry powder. Uh, it's got 10 billion of cash. Uh, they've been working on designs for uh, new generation wings for now, you know, more than five years. And even though this is a blended wing body, it will still, at the end of the day, have wings. And hopefully Airbus will be able to use some of the technology that they're already developing. Um, you know, if blended wing is going to be what the design of the next generation is, then Airbus is entirely capable of uh, matching that and financially is way better off than um, Boeing at that. It's, it's clearly not good for Airbus, though, because I think Airbus was relishing the thought that there might be no competitive design coming out of Boeing, and that was who they were looking at, for a decade, decade and a half, and they could just sit back, fat, dumb and happy, keep on producing a321 neos and possibly eventually an a322 and it, that was a recipe for super profits um i think they're going to have to start working uh now on uh new designs it's not that they can't but it's a it's a less profitable company at the end of this decade than it otherwise would have been because there's going to be a, a ton more r and i'm i still think that's good i think this industry needs to step up multiple gears to deal with the the challenge of a net zero as opposed to jet zero um and uh you know in that respect um bring it on and that's very good i just want to pick up ron on one point in what was otherwise an absolutely fantastic um uh you know tour d'horizon of the the merits of this um, he used my least favorite word in engineering which is just uh, my experience is that every time I hear company management talk about, use the word just, you know, it's just a simple re-winging. Uh, it's just a stretch. Uh, you know, it, it's just a software upgrade. The individual using that, and clearly this is not wrong, uh, but company managements, when they use that, tend not to understand the uh, magnitude of what, the full magnitude of what they're talking about. And a depressingly large number of times, uh, the program concerned then has a cost overrun or worse because the engineering challenge was much greater than just. Um, and, and I think that the, the challenge for Jet Zero is going to be to get the, the point design right because this will not scale. Um, uh, you know, it, it will require a revolution in um, uh, manufacturing technology to uh, enable uh, cheap scaling. And this is an industry that has made great money out of um, you know, tube and wing and the scalability of those designs, because you know, as Ron says, it's just it is just in this case Lego. Um, but uh, a blended wing design, pretty much everything changes each time you uh, you upgauge or downgauge. So they're going to have to get that that point design absolutely correct. On the other hand, if the economics are good enough, nobody will care because it will, you know, uh, absolutely 
destroy the the competitive economics of of all the tube and wing designs. Um, I want to uh, keep talking about this, but uh, just give me a minute to urge our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gertler. Um, I should have mentioned uh, that there were overhead windows uh, in order to get light uh, in the cabin, but getting light in the cabin is a little bit different than, uh, you know, you would having a window seat, uh, as I mentioned. Um, and Richard, let me uh, go back to you because I do want to get uh, to climate impact and the F-16 uh, deal as well that we have to talk about. How problematic is this potentially for Boeing? Um, you know, it's doing the KC-46. The Air Force has said that it wants to go to a stealthy tanker uh, for a portion of the buy. So it looks like that might get truncated. Um, we've had, you know, the, the XYZ approach that looks like it's in question. How does all of this, you think, impact? Well, I think in the short and midterm, kind of neutral, because if they really do get a prototype going by 2027, a remarkably ambitious goal, but hey, maybe they can do it. And conceivably, then you might have procurement of a KCZ based upon this, you know, beginning in FY, I don't know, take your pick 2032 or something, you're kind of eroding the case for that KCY that keeps going out and coming in and whatever else, and makes a strong argument for you just keep going with KC-46s until you do that KCZ. You don't need the bridge. I'm sure Lockheed Martin uh, and Airbus would disagree with this, but, you know, the more that can be done to create a viable KCZ, and the more you just make a case for keeping going until you have 300 or so KC-46s. I think that's a reasonable scenario. In the long run, you know, still the same problem. If they don't innovate, if they keep neglecting their design skills, and again, it's been decades since they've launched a true clean sheet and with uh, leadership very clearly saying, nope, not anytime soon, you know, they do run the risk of being disrupted here. And, you know, people have posited, well, they could just buy them. Not if it's in the hands of Northrop Grumman, because, you know, they've made it very clear, uh, as Ron says, you know, Northrop Grumman has a lot of long-term capability here. And it wasn't that long ago, okay, a couple decades, but Northrop Grumman did have a commercial unit that actually built the body of the 747. It's not inconceivable they could be interested in building aerostructures again. And you couple that with Raytheon and the fact that they're as big as Boeing practically or as big as Airbus, why don't they assume the mantle of an effective virtual prime, maybe recruit some other structures companies? You have the very real chance of Boeing being disrupted long-term in its core business. But in the short and medium term, I think they're fine. Does um, Has the Air Force said whether or not it's going to share this design or does this team actually have, like, what do we what do we know about the nature of the competition that went into this, how these guys ended up with this and what happens with the work uh, product? Ron, what happens with the work product at the end of this? I mean, is this something that the Air Force then can share with whomever? Uh, it gives technical data out to everybody to allow a fairer competition. So how does, how does. I, I, I honestly don't know. Yeah. You might want to ask Richard that. I have no idea. Richard. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not any better informed. You know, it was kind of, I was at the, the conference, uh, the press conference and it, there wasn't a lot of detail. They, you know, it took some coaxing to get them to say that 235 million certainly wasn't enough for a prototype that it would take this industry buy-in. When you have industry buy-in, that might complicate intellectual property ownership. Uh, and you know, it's also very clear that this is not the mainstream Air Force. This is happy, you know, basically saying, hey, this is an interesting thing for us to do. It's not the mainstream Air Force. Uh, that, too, might complicate actual ownership issues because it's it's more the mainstream Air Force, that, you know, the, the, the regular part, <laughs> the actual force that is prioritizing IP ownership. So in other right. words, um, this might really become a, a long a long term complication. But it's it's an interesting question. It's huge. Uh, it is uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. All right. Uh, moving uh, on. Um, let me just quickly ask uh, all of you, because I do want to end on the F-16 question, but I think it's important. You know, we, we just had the devastating Lahania fire. Uh, that was a town of uh, 10,000 uh, that was wiped off the map. Um, 
It's north of 100 that have been confirmed dead. There are now a week after, more than a week, week and a half after the fire, more than 1,000 people who are missing. And it is becoming clear to people that those people are likely lost along with an enormous amount of cultural heritage uh, that was unique uh, to what was the capital uh, of Hawaii. Um, we, yeah, the Canadian uh, Royal Canadian Air Force is doing a heroic job, uh, along with uh, the firefighters, fires all across the country and a thousand, a, a, a town of 20,000 Yellowknife uh, is being evacuated as flames now skirt the edge of that town. Uh, Ron, you're scuba diving in the Caribbean where the water is so hard, hot, it's like a sous vide and it's poaching the ocean. Uh, Europe is so hot that there are friends of mine um, who would never have entertained buying air conditioning who have invested in air conditioning. Um, how, at, at some point, does this eat into defense spending expectations and desires? You may want to spend more money. But eventually, you know, th does the bulk of some of these climatological disasters start to mount up and start to impinge on spending? Whoever wants to uh, take a bite of that. R Richard, do you want to take a bite at it? Because in our pre-discussion, pre you know, you were sort of like, you know, security threats are security threats and you have to stand up to them. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's absolutely no historical link econometrics of any sort and defense spending. And you look at the one thing that Trump and Biden have in common is that neither of them were terribly fiscally disciplined. That appears to be out in Washington. You know, a tiny minority of both party that really cares about fiscal discipline, except when it comes to you know, using it as an occasional to beat up the other party. Uh, so I'm not overly concerned. I'm more concerned about the impact of all of this on, on tourism. Could you have a tipping point where people say, not feeling like traveling right now. Um, you know, it certainly isn't showing up in the numbers. Is it something that could happen if, you know, these sort of catastrophes become routine? You know, certainly I've, my, my family is, uh, it, at least on my wife's side, is, is a bit bi-coastal and, you know, might have entertained the idea of maybe spending part of the year in California. And now we're like, gee, that appears to be the land of the apocalypse. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Um, could that have an impact if this keeps going on, if you keep seeing these sort of catastrophes part of the global landscape, does that impact people's perception of, of travel and, you know, living in multiple places? You know, it just might. We haven't seen it yet, but it just might. Uh, and I should say, right, I mean, we have a massive uh, typhoon that's bearing down on uh, California and on Baja California uh, in Mexico that could drop you know, in one storm, the amount of rain uh, the, the region gets in an entire uh, year. Ron and, and Sash, do you guys have any thoughts on this before I go to uh, F-16s uh, for Ukraine? I, I guess my take is um, maybe a little different. Um, you know, it just, I guess this is sort of a weird way to look at it, but it, the, the day that the Boston Marathon got bombed, the SP-500 hit new highs. Um, and my point there is people get used to stuff, right? I mean, had that happened and 9-11 didn't happen. And, you know, so, you know, the, the, the climate stuff, necessity is always the mother of invention. Um, it, you know, if this continues, uh, I would imagine you'll see various governments doing various things to, to try to mitigate it the best they can. Uh, if there is a way to kind of turn back the clock on all this, but I would imagine people will still travel and, People learn to live with it and live around it and, you know, life will go on. And, and then when you try to compare it to security threats, it's, it's a threat. I suppose it is a security threat. It's a different kind of security threat. Um, but the nation state or non-nation state human threats, they'll still be there. We'll still have to spend on them. Um, so I don't know. I mean, in the end, I, I probably fall into maybe Richard's camp or, or it's most likely not at least a, a short to medium term issue, ultimately, but we'll see where it all plays out. Uh, it's going to be, I think, particularly interesting to see how it plays out as, you know, populations get older, uh, healthcare costs are increasing, people are living longer. You know, I mean, we see Australia in a, in a, a, a military modernization trend. There was a billion dollar high Mars deal this week at the same time that Canberra was saying, hey, we're going to have actually a pretty big budget deficit here. Uh, in a couple of decades. So that's that's where I'm sort of curious is, right, at, at some point, you do have to get a degree of fiscal discipline and having a lot of debt is okay, as long as interest rates don't go up. But when interest rates are going up, 
uh, you're you're in trouble. We've seen Italy get into that kind of trouble uh, uh, before. Uh, Sash, uh, a quick take from you before we wrap it up on uh, F-16s. Um, I think you're missing one thing from the, the fiscal discipline, which is tax. Taxes are going to go up. Taxes are going to go up in two ways. First of all, to pay. Uh, by the way, defense. I completely, I didn't say that, but taxes are going to have to go up and we're going to have to reduce spending, right? And and so that's, you know, that's, I guess, my question is, does defense get squeezed out if you have to do a lot of climatological work to safeguard communities, you know, indemnify people, you know, move communities, uh, build infrastructure? Uh, I, so- just I just don't buy that, Bargo. What's the first thing that people ask? or call for when there's a crisis like this? Where's the military to help us with X, Y, Z, A, B, C? You know, who, who is it that is involved in evacuating the citizens of Yellowknife? It's the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, if you haven't got an Air Force, or if you have underinvested in your Air Force, um, the uh, you, you know politicians are punished for that sort of short spending. I actually think, I mean, first of all, no, I do think we're going to see higher taxes. But specifically... I think this is much more negative for air travel than it is for And people like to, to travel, but only at a, to a price. And governments will use price as a means of uh, restricting air travel, as in Europe they are doing to restrict car travel. Um, none of us like to talk about that, but that, that's what's happening already uh, in terms of penalising car travel in Europe. And you're seeing governments, for example, um, and Europe will lead the way and will initially self-punish itself uh, I'm convinced of that, and I'm you know don't terribly look forward to it. But it's how these things happen. But governments will restrict the ability of airports to expand. We're seeing that with the Netherlands, where Schiphol Airport is now forbidden to expand. Period. Heathrow will go the same way. Third run, r- runway, forget it. Gatwick, similar. Uh, you know, will almost certainly not be allowed another. And then there will be higher passenger taxes on. Uh, um, on on air travel to to try to choke it off because it, air travel is the biggest problem and this comes back to the the, the blended wing body thing. Look at the, the the Jet Zero website. It looks at what happens to global emissions of CO two if we keep on flying like we are. They just go ballistic, uh, and that is going to be the the political and the social problem for commercial aerospace over the next ten to fifteen years. Um, by the way, I'm I'm not endorsing a cut to military spending. Uh, I'm just saying that. You know, at at some point, um, very expensive high end militaries. You you just have to wonder exactly how much resources we're willing to pay, given that we've actually been living a lie. Right, we've all shrunk our military forces to a degree that they actually, you know, teeter on the verge of not having the utility we need them to have. Right. So I'm I'm a big supporter on continuing military investment. I'm just saying that at some point, if you have a fixed amount of uh, resources. How are you going to invest those resources at the end of the day? And it, it, to me, it's an interesting question. I agree with you. Um, you know, taxes are going to have to go up, and you're going to have to change how it is you fundamentally spend uh, your money. But um, Bobby, you don't have a fixed amount of resources. Governments can always borrow because governments can always put taxes up. The UK bankrupted itself in two successive wars. That's just how stuff happens in crises like this. It's it's not pleasant to think about, but um, you spend what it takes. What uh, and what the security situation demands. I would agree with you, but I think that you also have to have a different uh, sort of climatological model at the uh, end of the day as well on, on how do you sort of collectively deal with this. And you wonder at what point knife hits enough bone uh, that that folks begin to act uh, collectively in order to solve it. Um, let me just uh, quickly um, on F-16s, uh, you know, a great decision on the part of Washington, if terrifically uh, overdue. Uh, now the Danes and the Dutch uh, are allowed to train the Ukrainians uh, on F-16s. I think it's about 42 jets that are supposed to go to Ukraine, first fast uh, jets that are going to be going there. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has been, uh, was in Sweden, uh, where he is pushing to get some grippens from the Swedes. Uh, as well, these jets will, you know, these crews are not going to get trained within eight months. Uh, so they arrive next year at the earliest. Um, Sash, do you want to take it away or, or Richard or Ron, you know, sort of how, how does this go uh, and, and what does this effectively mean? And what's the door that it opens up to more weapons for the Ukrainians? Because they are doing damage, but they're doing damage through long range drones. For example, they destroyed a Russian bomber, um, you know, uh, this weekend. But they did it with long-range uh, drones. Go ahead, Sash. Take it away. 
it's a great decision, um, but about a year too late. Uh, we should have been agreeing to deliver military aircraft to Ukraine, um, you know, no later than this time a year ago. And one of the reasons why Ukraine has found it so hard to gain and then retain a military advantage over that time has been that uh, it hasn't had command of the air over Ukraine itself, let alone over um, over the territories that, uh, that it's lost. And it's, it's, it's very sad. Is it going to change the military balance now? I would be very interested to see whether it does or not. It will almost certainly deter Russian uh, fast air and hopefully Russian rotary wing as well. And, you know, Russian rotary wing capabilities, um, attack helicopters in defence have been very, very, succe- very successful against the Ukrainian um, uh, offensives. Um, so that that would be a positive thing. I, I find this idea that it's going to take eight months to train the Ukrainian supply F sixteens. There is still a tremendous amount of bureaucratic inertia here, plus a degree of what well, these guys are. Uh, you know, they're not very capable, and um, uh, you know, we we tend to assume that the Ukrainians are um, much, much, not just poor, poorly trained, but very poorly motivated. Whereas in fact, they're anything but. I was very interested talking to uh, the Saab. Uh, people, and this was, you know, uh, probably five months ago now, they said they could teach uh, Ukrainians to fly, Ukrainian pilots to fly Gripen well within a month and to fight it in, um, you know, a few weeks after that to a standard at which they would survive and prevail. Beyond that, you know, complex uh, mission packages, yeah, that takes a bit longer um, uh, or sometimes a, a lot longer. But the Ukrainians want to have a degree of at least air superiority over their own ground, that shouldn't take it uh, eight months. And it's a really poor reflection on how we think about training, um, uh, you know, soldiers, airmen, sailors in a time of war that we can't break that mold. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. These are experienced combat aviators. Uh, then there's like, well, you know, where are we going to get people who speak Ukrainian? By the way, they all speak Russian. So you could put training uh, through them. Uh, you know, if if the limiting factor are Ukrainian speakers, you could get Russian speakers uh, to, uh, to, to try to help them out as well. Right. I mean, so I think, you know, you're just trying to find excuses as opposed to figure out ways to actually help them at, at the speed of relevance and and uh, uh, the, the the systems and equipment that they uh, ultimately need. Guys, thanks very much as always. Really appreciate it. Uh, hope you guys have a great uh, weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Enjoyed it a lot. Thanks very much uh, to you guys. Thanks very much for the audience to join us. And a very special thanks uh, to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We'll see you again tomorrow uh, with uh, the Look Ahead program that is going to have former uh, Pentagon Comptroller Bob Hale uh, to discuss the PPBE Reform Commission uh, results. Uh, Don't miss that. Uh, Sam Bendett from the Center for Naval Analyses uh, to discuss uh, Ukraine's uh, drone uh, strikes. Uh, as well as Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Thanks very much again for joining us and hope you have a great day and see you tomorrow.